0: because I'm the founder of the company, real estate trust.com. You're listening to The Church Boys Free Fall Q&A. It's
1: Billy Hollowell here with The Church Boys and I have Father Nick Marziani here. How are you doing today? Doing well. And you said I could just call you Nick.
2: You can call me Nick.
1: <laughs> I am fascinated by your background for about a hundred different reasons. Um, Because you have you were an engineer, yes. Trained, worked as an engineer. Mm -hmm. You became an Episcopal priest, correct. And now you are a Catholic priest, correct. But you're a married father of five. Do I have that correct? A
2: married father of three with seven living grandchildren.
1: Okay, father of three with seven living grandchildren. I say
2: seven living because we, my eldest daughter, did have one miscarriage, but we consider that also a child. Absolutely. In heaven. Yes. So I say seven living grandchildren, three adult children.
1: Absolutely. Now. Let's start with why you went from engineering into becoming a faith leader. What was it for you that caused that?
2: I've always been interested in in science, okay? Even as a a kid. uh, And so that has just been a part of me. And there's scientific references in my book um, and that will always be a part of my my world. For a brief time, I taught uh, high school physics, honors physics and so forth. Um, I just like science. So, that, that's just a dimension of my life. Now, the faith, the, uh, the faith walk was also something that was part of my early training, uh, and I've always found a fascinating correlation uh, between the two. I, there are two different ways of thinking about reality, science, and faith. Uh, faith and reason, as Pope Benedict XVI used to put it, and was a brilliant theologian. Uh, there's no contradiction. I, I, I love the interplay between faith and reason. So to me, <clears throat> it was just a complimentary, supplemental, and complementary uh, thing to get into. But beyond all that, the call to ministry in particular was just something that God just put in my heart.
1: That's amazing. And so, was it a hard decision to say I'm not going to be? Was, I guess was there a time where you were doing engineering still and also working? Right. As Actually,
2: a when I it's a fascinating story in itself. After I was I had practiced in the technical field, you know with circuit boards and so forth. I actually, for a number of years, was the director of graduate engineering admissions at George Washington University. That was my last gig before I became an Episcopal priest. And the amazing story there was that there was a Jewish Holocaust survivor dean of that school.
1: Oh, wow.
2: Who And I can't go into detail, but he was very instrumental in assisting me to finish my theological education. It's a story in itself, and Dr. Gideon Frieder he is in my acknowledge, among my uh, uh, dedication page. He is among those to whom this book is dedicated.
1: And the book, holy fool, holy father, which I love. The, <laughs> it's it's a novel.
2: Yes, it is. It's a novel.
1: And I want to talk more about it after I continue drilling you with questions about your past, because I'm I'm fascinated by this. So you you become a member of the clergy in the Episcopal Church. Right. Now, at what point? Do you decide to go to the Catholic Church?
2: I was part of the evangelical wing of the Episcopal Church, and many of us in the evangelical wing were hoping, naively, I think now in retrospect, that somehow or another we could, we could find a place in the Anglican Communion and in the ca- in the uh, 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 Episcopal Church to be able to have a, a proper evangelical witness, biblically traditional, biblically responsible witness. Uh, we. Most of us discovered that it—it's it, well nigh impossible. Uh, the Episcopal Church's hierarchy simply has decided they don't want to go that way.
1: Well, it seems like they're having a hard time finding a place in the Anglican <laughs> community now. Yes, now too. that's another story um,
2: too. That's right. That's exactly—they're being which kicked, is a little surprising. They're being um, kicked out by the African bishops, basically. So you know, I and I looked around and I said, you know, what do I really like? What do I really want in my religious and philosophical expression? I actually touch upon it in in my book, too. I want coherence. I want unity. I want things to flow and to cohere and to be unified. That's how God made reality. Diverse, but unified and coherent. Like uh, the word, uh, we talk about hologram, wholeness. The word hologram, coherent laser light, is what makes a hologram which, as you know, is a 3D image in space that's just it, amazing. That's what coherence will do in, in any context. As I looked around the Anglican communion, I saw no coherence any longer. I looked at the Catholic Church, and for all of its many sins, many sins over the years, I saw a fundamental coherence that, in spite of its sinfulness, was present that told me that this was something that, for my personal values, I had to be a part of this to be at peace in my heart.
1: Now, is it common? How long have you been a Catholic priest?
2: A Catholic priest, uh, was ordained on Father's Day, uh, appropriately in the year 2012. So and I okay. was a Catholic in uh, the year starting the year 2006 is when I left the Episcopal Church.
1: So now is this common for somebody to be married and obviously you go into the priesthood, it's different if you're starting out not married, right. um, but you're you already married. How common is it for people like you to go in with a family and become a Catholic priest? Well, what I
2: can tell you is that there are at least a few hundred of us in the uh, around the globe. There are three personal ordinariates, uh, which are personal prelatures, as they call it, of the Holy See, that consist of largely married clergy. Uh, in addition, there's another provision in the United States known as the Pastoral Provision, Different, but related to the personal ordinariates. Okay, uh, that has maybe a hundred priests, even in that. Or maybe it's down to sixty now. I don't know. But all told, globally, I would say I'm just guessing. I would say there's somewhere around four, five hundred, maybe. I don't know. Maybe maybe three, four hundred uh, married former Anglican Catholic priests worldwide. Wow, worldwide.
1: That's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. Are there any unique challenges to that um are there any you know it's i mean it's interesting it's another perspective there are
2: challenges i mean for for the guys see my when i was ordained my kids were all adults and you know for the younger guys who still have young children i think it's awfully hard a pk you know the pk thing yeah whether it's preacher's kid or a priest kid yeah pk is pk and it's got to be difficult to be a pk uh, in any circumstance. And I do think that the, uh, the, the, the guys with younger families probably do have a lot of, and their wives, have lots of things to deal with. In my case, my children were already pretty much grown. And so the Catholic church basically got two for one in, in a sense with, with me, because my wife is a, is a ministry partner. Uh, we run this little church together and she's the logistics kind of like financial overseer along with some other lay people there. Um, and she helps in so many ways so um in my case it's it's it, it's no issue at all in other cases it's it could hard. Be, yeah
1: it's hard it could be hard um Is there freedom? Because I find this interesting in any denomination to disagree with the church on things. I mean, there are things where you kind of—I don't want to get you in trouble—but where you're like, you know, theologically maybe we have a difference there. And I always ask people this because I'm there's
2: dogma, there's settled dogma and doctrine, you know, of which there are not a whole lot of stuff. You know, let's face it: Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Ten Commandments. You know, know, (laughs) we have certain rules in the church about fasting and you know, like during Lent and so forth. But other than that. Um, there is a great deal of legitimate theological diversity in the church, which the genius, this is the thing, the genius of the Catholic Church, unlike the Anglican Communion, you can disagree with non-essential matters in the Catholic Church. There is a forum for that disagreement, and, and you can stay a Catholic in good standing. What you can't do is, is digress from fundamental church teaching, all right? but with. But that being said, it's a small, relatively small amount, really, of the faith. There's huge, beautiful questions in theology that are constantly being debated. But because we have the center of unity in the figure of the Pope, we're free to, to go about these investigations and know that when all is said and done, we come around the table and we're all still one church. Unlike the Anglican Communion, when they start fighting, they just tear themselves to pieces.
1: Let's talk about the end times. Yeah, okay. How's that, how's that transition for Let's just go into the end let's times. Let's just go there. Yeah, let's um, do it. A lot of people looking at the world right now, feeling very, a lot of Christians, regardless of what denomination, feeling uncomfortable, seeing things, especially in the U.S., but globally. I mean, you talk about ISIS. Everything seems, and this is my view, actually, disconnected, something's off, something exactly. doesn't quite feel right. Yes. You can't really put your finger on it, but you know something's happening. Yes. That's, kind of, that's the thing that so many people have said to me. Something's yes. happening. I'm like, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I feel that way. Um, do you think we are inching towards, well, we're always, I guess we're always inching towards the end times, and it's a dangerous question to ask do you think we're in it back? I'm gonna throw it out there.
2: Absolutely, and our moral, uh, our, our lack of moral uh, and, 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 and spiritual integrity, okay? And, and I have to go along with the Pope with this, and our abuse of the earth, which goes along with that, our exploitation of the earth through our covetous and lustful greed, tearing our, our planet apart, uh, and which is a very strong theme in the Eastern Orthodox churches, which I strongly deal with in my book, Holy Fool, Holy Father. Uh, the earth itself rev- revulses. of uh, the earth itself groans. I mean, Paul speaks in Romans, uh, in Romans nine, of how you know how the earth itself uh, groans and, and all creation groans. Uh, or I guess it's Romans, Romans. Um, uh, trying to get my getting getting myself skewed here maybe it's Romans 8 actually Romans 8 anyway the earth itself groans because of our sins in the old testament we read how the sins of the people called the the earth to spit them out that's why they were put sent off into the diaspora into the galut um, yes we are we are in the end times and our abuse of ourselves of god's laws of the earth is going to produce a reaction and in, in the way I end my book there is a geocataclysm that occurs based upon unusual solar activity, which we know from history has occurred and will occur again. Solar activity that in our uh, highly technological and very vulnerable society, our, 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 our machines, our toys, our power grids are woefully under, under-hardened from some massive things that could come literally from the sun. And the sun itself may, in effect, be used of God to punish the earth. In fact, we, 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 we read how uh, it says that, you know, in the book of Revelation, how people will, will chew their tongues, the, it will, you know, all these different signs in the heavens. The heavens themselves will, will, will show their displeasure at human sin uh, in these end times. And that's, that's a critical part of the what, ending of my book.
1: What convinces you that we're inching toward it or in it? Are there, are there any particular pieces where you look at the Bible? Because there, the Bible talks about this. Not in every little... It's not so specific that, you know, but it feels
2: like... The great apostasy. Yeah. The great apostasy. To, to me, the most disappointing thing that is the number of young people who have been brought up in the faith... And who have just decided, you know, willy-nilly, they turn 18, go to college, want to impress their professors and their peers, and decide, "Oh, I don't have to believe in Jesus, I have to believe in God. I can have sex with everybody I want to have sex with. Anything goes." And their parents barely recognize them when they come home. The, to, to see the extent of the falling apart of the of the young people of our nation in droves. I mean, this is part of
1: the polls are showing it. Pew
2: Research, began. the whole thing. Uh, this, this is we are we are reaching the point where young people are being lost to the faith and to and to all that God is, that's godly and holy, much quicker than at least in this country than others may be coming to the faith. Now in the third world that's different. People are coming to the faith. Muslims are waking up with dreams of Jesus speaking to them. So you know evangelization is still going on. People are still being saved. But you know in economics there's this principle of marginal. Benefit and marginal cost. At the point at which the marginal cost of something that you're doing starts to exceed the marginal benefit, it's at that point that it's time to close down the close down shop. And I think we may be the Lord may be looking at His world and saying that that's where we are. That that there are actually more people potentially being lost than are being saved. And He may just say, out of compassion for this world, because of because of what's happening, that it's time to close the shop time to draw the cards in let's call the game let's see what we've got and these are my precious ones who will go into blessing and these will, will unfortunately go into perdition
1: and you talk about the the second coming and, and when that will be and nobody knows obviously we don't know and and you know, I've, I've said to people, I wonder how much worse it could get, right? Could this go on for another 1,000 years? Could it go on for another 100 years? Could it go on for five more years? We don't, I guess we don't know.
2: I kind of doubt it, though. I see the acceleration, the pace of the change, and I. you do a little extrapolation in your head, and you mm-hmm. figure this can't go on much longer.
1: The last five years, especially yeah. um, socially, culturally, politically, in every way yep. have been Strange, yeah, um, and continue to be strange. And you know, you wonder.
2: We've had difficult days, like in the '60s and so forth. Then came the revivals of the '70s, which were beautiful. That's when many Jewish people came to faith in Christ, young people. That's when I came to a a reignited faith in Christ because I had drifted from it from my childhood faith. Um, you know, so we've had revivals of religion. It's beautiful. That's what that's what it's all about. But Pew has
1: never seen though young people. When I asked this question to Pew because I interviewed them about the study. I said, Well "Yeah." When you compare other generations at this point in time when they're young, because young people are always more liberal, they're always more whatever. I mean, we know that. Was there a difference? And the answer is yes. Yes. There is a difference. This is not the same trend of, yes, you're going to get more conservative and more, you know, you may become a Christian, but when you get older. This is different. It's a generation that is, uh, when you look at the nuns, the people who aren't attached to religion. Right bigger, much bigger percentage than the, the general population. Right.
2: And what's interesting is in this book, Holy Fool, Holy Father, I speak of the religious spiritual revival that actually really is occurring in Russia of all places. People don't know this, but uh, I visited Russia recently, and I was amazed to see that there is a, now it's it's not evangelical Protestant, you know, there are Baptists there, but the revival that's occurring in the Russian Orthodox Church, young people coming and, and, and being devoted to Christ, the, the person of Jesus Christ, and all that that means. It's amazing. And there's a there's a theme that goes back to the 19th century called Holy Russia. Holy Russia. That w- Holy Russia it will have a major part of helping to save the world. That's part of the driving thesis of this book. I
1: was just going to say, we're almost done, but I want to give you more time. I wanna, we're going to link out to the book and everything when we, when sure. we um, publish this. But tell me... Tell me a little bit about the book, Holy Fool, Holy Father, and what you want people to take away from it.
2: What I want them to take away is that uh, this is a story within a story. The overarching big idea is that the churches need to come together and to be unified and coherent. Uh, All branches of Christianity need to come back together in order to deal with what's coming, the apocalypse that's coming. The church needs to be unified to give a united witness to the world and to Israel concerning what is coming. Now, that's the large, that's the big idea of the book. What makes the book, though, interesting, beyond because it's not a treatise of theology, it's, it's woven in there, is that it's really a coming-of-age story of two young people in Russia, Misha and Anastasia. They are metaphors for, on the one hand, the Russian Orthodox, and on the other hand, the Catholic faith. They're both, and it takes place, starts in Kazakhstan. This is all research. This is all for real stuff, all right? Fictional characters, but real places. And so you follow the evolving, dynamic relationship between Misha and Anna, as they pull together their relationship and goes through twists and turns. The larger theme, a preparation for the apocalypse and the unification of the churches of the Orthodox side of the of the aisle and the Catholic side side of the aisle. These themes all start to weave and roll together in a very tight weave. It took me four years to write this write this oh, book. Wow. And it, because I was weaving things in such a way that there was an intricate connection.
1: In a deeper way. In a name, deeper yeah.
2: way. It's, it's not a super light read. It requires a little bit of focus. That's good. But it's rich, and you yeah. learn a lot about, about real things. Uh, it's, a, it's a blend. It's a blend of uh, uh, historical fiction, romance, ecclesiastical politics, um, apocalyptic, uh, uh, cataclysmic, apoc- uh, dystopic, apocalyptic. Uh, there are any number of things in here uh, and the, the theme of the Holy Fool, the Holy Fool is, the, is a special kind of saint in the Orthodox tradition. The Holy Fool is one who is willing to be a fool for Christ all the way, goes all the way with being a fool for Christ. And so the characters in my book, Misha and Anna, have to become Holy Fools in order to fulfill their mission as they grow through to their ministry together. And so that's, that's in a, in a very, very, very short uh, summary, that's what this book is about.
1: Well, I love it, and I appreciate you speaking with me today. We're going to have to have you back for sure. You bet. Talk about.
2: They can go on, <laughs> by the way. They can go on Amazon, and they'll, they'll be able to link to the website for the book, which goes into greater detail as to the theme of the book.
1: And we will link to that, too, and we'll also link to Amazon. Fantastic. Thank Alrighty. you very much.
2: Thank you.
0: Because I'm the founder of the company, real estate agents, I trust. Dot com.